Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic Hark now hear the sailors The Mystic cry. Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. Through the summer months, I'm offering something a little lighter than our usual fare. This is because I need to take a break from producing a weekly program, and because you might enjoy some summertime storytelling to take with you onto the back deck or out on a road trip. Each week, I'll be reading from How the Light Gets In, a collection of my short stories published by the Anglican Book Centre back in 1999. Despite my urge to do some major rewriting, I've tried to leave these stories pretty much as they were, except where I couldn't help myself. I'll release two stories a week, one on Sunday and one on Thursday. If you don't want to miss a story... Be sure to subscribe on whatever format you use for your podcasts. And while you're at it, give the podcast a rating. That helps spread the word. I hope you enjoy these homespun tales as we all take our summer sun. Words. Words are what we have been given, but they are never enough, not for the really important things. Preachers are aware of this every week they rise to the pulpit or wander down the aisle to speak again the good news. It is an impossible burden. Words of life are called for, yet each week they hear once again coming from their mouths the same hackneyed expressions, the same theological predilections, the same sameness. It has been said that every preacher has only one sermon, and most of us preached it long ago. The church is crammed to its vaulted ceiling with words. Over the eons they accumulate, Packed together shoulder to shoulder like beef calves on their way to slaughter, their feet barely touching the floorboards. They push out against the walls, and centuries old stained glass windows bulge with the pressure. I imagine a curious passerby approaching a stately old cathedral late on a Sunday morning, attracted perhaps by the sound of singing. Tentatively, he ascends the broad concrete steps rising from the sidewalk. The sound like that of a rushing wind can be heard approaching. Suddenly, the heavy oak doors burst open, sending him flying a hundred feet in the air. Wrong place at the wrong time, someone will think as they read about it next day in the paper. But it wasn't location that killed him. It was words. Too many words. There are indications that the world, too, is growing weary of our words, striking back with its own. 
A slogan on a nearby overpass was recently edited to read, Jesus is gourd. And would-be vandals, hampered only by their illiteracy, last fall spray-painted a bold message at the doors of my church. Satin rules, the block letters screamed. The fashion vigilantes had struck again. But the truth is, however tiresome our proliferation of words, however clumsy and inadequate, the alternative is unthinkable, at least for most Christians. Each week in the worship service at my church, we try to observe a reflective silence following each of the readings. The idea is that the reader stands quietly at the lectern for a few moments so that we might allow the Word of God to sink in a bit before we move on. But you would think we were asking people to sit through a recital of blackboard chalk scrapers. Our readers announce the conclusion of the first reading, linger self-consciously for a millisecond, and then immediately begin fidgeting with the pages of the large lectern Bible, turning over whole sections at a time, adjusting ribbons, getting themselves ready for the second reading. The congregation en masse makes a grab for the pew bulletin to see what's coming up next. Throats are cleared, bodies are readjusted in the pews, people look at their watches and glance around the room. Finally, an agonizing ten seconds later, the silence ends, and everyone breathes a collective sigh of relief. So I should have known better than to invite a mime to preach the sermon last Sunday. It was one of those impulsive things you do from some deep desire or need you can't quite name. It did not go before the worship committee, as most innovations do in our church. It barely even passed through my own silly ideas detector. But I have been riding high since the success of our Blessing of the Animals service last fall, and she was so good doing her busker routine downtown one Saturday morning a few weeks back. My kids were entranced. My wife clapped her hands in sheer delight, and I had a brainwave. When the mime had acknowledged the applause of the crowd and passed around a dusty old top hat, the performance seemed to be over. I approached her. She remained perfectly in character, raising her eyebrows and leaning forward in exaggerated interest in what I might have to say. First, I told her how much we had just enjoyed the show. She raised a hand over her eyes and turned away, feigning modesty. I said I was a parish priest. Her fingers parted, and she peeked out at me with guarded interest from behind her hand. It might be ridiculous, I said, but I couldn't help wondering how my congregation would react if she were to give the sermon some Sunday. Obviously, the content would have to be less, well, specific than usual. After all, I didn't even know if she was a Christian. She leaned forward, planting her hands on her knees, and cocked her head in a mixture of amusement and curiosity. I reflected how wonderful it might be for us to hear the gospel afresh through someone who didn't use words. She was staring at me, frozen in a gesture I couldn't read. It was as if she had retreated for the moment to some inner dressing room while she considered the offer. Even her eyes behind the thick grease paint revealed nothing. Then she was back. In a formal gesture, she straightened up and produced from behind her ear a business card. I thanked her and said I would be in touch. 
I was excited as we drove home in the car. The kids were ecstatic. Were we really going to have a clown in church? They wouldn't have to go to Sunday school that day, would they? My wife was less certain. Was I sure the church was really ready for this? It would be great, I said, just great. It wasn't until the next Monday that I pulled the card from my wallet to give her a call. I wondered what it would be like to hear her voice. But as I turned the card over in my hand, I realized there was nothing on it. I turned it over again. Nothing on one side, nothing on the other. Absolutely nothing. I couldn't believe it. But then, what did I expect? She was a mime, after all. So, this was some sort of puzzle. I made a closer inspection of the card. Nothing. But as I ran my thumb over the surface, I thought I could feel something. I held it up to the light. Still nothing. But there was definitely something there, a waxy streak, perhaps a stain of some kind. I sharpened a pencil and began shading the card lightly. As I did, something in the smell of the wood shavings reminded me of grade school, where a freshly sharpened pencil and a blank piece of white paper were all one needed to conjure a world of possibilities. Magically, words began appearing on the card. Dumbstruck Productions, it announced, and it gave a phone number. I smiled. Clever. When I called, I got a pre-recorded message. It was not one of those slick, automated call-answering programs provided for a fee by the phone company. It was an old click-and-whir answering machine. The message was scratchy, but a female voice seemed to be inviting me to leave a message. So, at the beep, I left my name and number along with the date and time of a Sunday service several weeks hence. A few days later, when I hadn't heard anything... I left another message, asking someone to please call me to confirm the date. I gave explicit directions how to get to the church and asked if a ride would be needed. I also mentioned that, of course, an honorarium would be provided and apologized for not having made that clear when we spoke. The machine cut me off with a click before I had finished. The next day, Grace, our church secretary, complained to me that she had been getting crank calls all morning. The caller wasn't saying anything. Grace said she couldn't even hear breathing, so she would just hang up. I told her next time it happened, just to transfer the call to me. She looked dubious. I reassured her that I thought I knew who it might be and that if I was right, it was all quite harmless. Sure enough, about 15 minutes later, the call came, and Grace gave it to me. Covering the mouthpiece, she whispered, I think this is the call you were waiting for. I said hello, but there came no reply. I said I was grateful for the call and that I would assume it was confirmation of our date. I gave her the readings for the day. I asked if someone would let me know if anything was needed by way of setup. There was still only silence. I thanked her again, said I looked forward to seeing her on the day, and hung up. Maybe I've been doing this job too long, but I couldn't recall having been so excited about a liturgical event in a very long time. Not even the visit of the lieutenant governor last year had succeeded in stirring my blood. Sure, it got our picture in the local paper, and he really gave us quite a good little pep talk about loving one another or something, but in the end, it had just seemed like a lot of extra work. This was different. 
Even I didn't know what to expect. And I found myself relishing the suspense when I announced in church that next Sunday at our main service, we would have a guest preacher whose name I didn't know and who probably would choose not to speak to us. I guess you'll just have to be here, I teased. And they were. Nothing like a little mystery to bring people back to church. Ten minutes before the service was to begin, my kids, who had been all too keen to enter into a conspiracy of silence, burst into the vestry. She's here! She's here! they cried. I went to the back door to see her getting out of a beat-up import. She was already in costume, a worn tuxedo with tails and top hat, her face greased into anonymity. She saw my kids, and crouching down, greeted them with open arms as if she were a visiting relative— They responded as if she were, and rushed into her arms. She tweaked their ears and pinched their noses. They walked together arm-in-arm across the parking lot like Dorothy and her friends on their way to Oz. I put out my hand when they got to the door, but instead of taking it, she gave me a low bow. I couldn't but respond in kind. I felt as giddy as a big kid. As I led her to the vestry, I began explaining how things worked— where the sermon would come in the service, where she would be sitting. She furrowed her brow deeply and stroked her chin, taking it all in with such exaggerated interest, I wondered if indeed she was paying the slightest attention. I gave up. You'll see, I said. She dragged her sleeve across her brow, wiping the imaginary sweat to the floor. We met the choir as they were assembling in the narthex. I introduced the mime as our preacher. She gave a shy curtsy. The choir members stared back in amazement. Oh, oh, I thought, as I read their reaction. Gail, one of the younger members, and Bill, a jokester in his own right, both smiled, catching something of the wackiness of the moment. But the rest, to a member, reflected only horror and dismay. Oh, my God, I could hear them thinking, gerbils were one thing, but what has he done this time? The organ swelled and the procession began. Our mime in front of me assumed her place like a bridesmaid in a formal wedding. One foot sliding out in front, the other foot catching up, touching toe to carpet, then sliding out in turn. She held her hands out in front as if clasping a bouquet. Her white face was solemn, funereal even, and she looked straight ahead. The people on the aisles did a double-take as they caught their first sight of our guest. Children yanked at their parents' sleeves. Old Mrs. Riley, sitting in her usual place on the aisle, unable to stand along with the rest of the congregation, appeared genuinely delighted as she craned her neck and caught the fantastic sight. This was a good sign. I ushered the mime to a seat behind the pulpit, the usual place for preachers, and returned to the top of the chancel steps for the greeting. The words were no sooner out of my mouth than I was aware of distracting movement off stage to my right. The mime was standing on her tippy-toes, peering out over top of the pulpit. Her eyes were wide, her body taut, as she strained to take in the congregation. People were snickering. I said we had a special guest with us this morning who would be preaching the sermon, so the children were invited to stay with us in church rather than go down to the Sunday school. That was when I suddenly realized I had neglected to inform Bonnie, 
the Sunday school superintendent. She was staring at me, incredulous, from the side door, where she stood ready to usher them downstairs. Oops, sorry, I said aloud. Bonnie returned to her seat, red-faced and fuming. There would need to be a little bridge-mending there. We got through the collect and the readings without incident, the mime taking it all in, with eyes that were wide and alert as she sat at the edge of her seat in the sanctuary. I rose to read the gospel, which I had changed to fit the occasion. In the beginning was the Word, I intoned, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But no one seemed to be listening. The mime had risen from her seat and was making her way down the chancel steps. No, I thought, not yet. She was walking slowly, cautiously, up to the first pew. I tried to continue. The true light that enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Tentatively, she approached little Devon, a lively four-year-old who often disrupts my children's talks with non-sequiturs about his bunny or Spider-Man or anything else that happens to cross his mind at the moment. She extended her hand to him, but he slunk back into his mother's side, his eyes glued to the mime. Her hand made a motion in the air as if she was caressing his head. He remained uncertain. The world was made through him, I continued, yet the world knew him not. She straightened up as she saw Gus sitting down at the end of the first pew, his arms folded across his chest as he does every Sunday, unmoved by my jokes, unsympathetic to my wisest insights. She folded her own arms across her chest and raised her head to peer down at him. I heard someone chuckle. Gus was not amused, his face folding into a dark scowl. Suddenly, she twirled around on her toes, producing from midair a bouquet of plastic flowers. She looked at him for a moment, then tossed them carelessly into his lap. Her interest was caught now by old Mrs. Riley instead, halfway up the aisle. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. She approached Mrs. Riley as if in the court of a queen. Arriving at her pew, she knelt on one knee before her. She took Mrs. Riley's hand and, raising it slightly, drew it to her lips and kissed it. A broad smile spread across Mrs. Riley's face. Rising fully to the occasion, she gave the mime a regal nod. The mime got up and made her way down the aisle greeting each one who caught her eye with a nod. And from his fullness have we all received grace upon grace. Suddenly from the back of the church she turned and ran up the aisle. At the chancel steps she stopped, twirled around and stood, her feet wide apart, her hands on her hips, taking us all in. Then she reached deep into her oversized pockets and brought forth handfuls of gold coins, the kind with chocolate inside. With a flourish, she tossed them high into the air. There was a gasp from little voices. The coins landed, hitting people on the head, ricocheting off the backs of pews. Squealing children scrambled to get them. She dove deeply into her pockets and tossed into the air another handful— She held her arms high, suspended for a dramatic moment, and then reached in again. 
Jubilant with the congregation now in chaotic abandon, she skipped down the aisle, showering one side of the church and then the other with coins of gold. When she reached the back, she turned and tossed two more handfuls. Then, through the chaos, she looked at me across the distance. It was the first time our eyes had met. I tried to smile back at her, but could feel emotion rising in my throat, a strange combination of gratitude and regret. She took off her top hat and gave me a low, slow bow. Then she backed out of the church and left. There was pandemonium in the church. Children leapt over pews, their parents reaching to restrain them. People were laughing and talking. When everything died down, the congregation was breathing hard, a little flushed, and looking up at me in the pulpit. I collected myself and, inspired by the lunacy of it all, shrugged my shoulders and returned to my place in the sanctuary. And now to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, I began. Everyone not already standing rose to their feet instinctively. Be ascribed all might, majesty, power, dominion, and glory forever and ever. Amen, came the reply. And when that fog on blows I will be coming home And when that fog on blows I want to hear it I don't want to fear it And I want to rock your gypsy soul I've been reading from my book How the Light Gets In, a collection of short stories. I'll be rolling out two stories a week in the Mystic Cave through the summer months, and then returning to an interview format come the fall, when we'll be turning our attention to views of death and dying on the other side of Churchland. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too late.